Father, thank you for this seemingly difficult passage. I pray that this morning as we, uh, as we study your word that you would uh, encourage our hearts that we would behold your great grace. That what you promised many years ago we would celebrate this morning as we rejoice in the grace that you've given us through your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I have a bit of a confession to make. Uh, when Brad told me that I was going to be uh, uh, preaching this passage, uh, I really wasn't that excited about it uh, after reading it. Uh, I read through it, and I was like, this is kind of a disappointing, uh, disappointing story. And uh, I was like, thanks, Brad. Thank you give this one to me while you're gone. I, I see how that works. Uh, he gave me the depressing passage. And, you know, it, it's, really, it's really not that encouraging at first glance. I mean, if you, if you walk through it with me again, uh, you know, here we have yet another barren couple. Uh, did we just do this a couple weeks ago? We have another barren couple who, after 20 years of marriage, longing for children, still has no children. Um, and... You know, Isaac and Rebecca don't have this direct promise from God, but are relying on the promise given to his father, Abraham. And then, you know, they petition God, and they're faithful to God in prayer, and, and God gives Rebecca children, twins. But it's not long after that that she then seeks the Lord because of the trouble that she's having and the warring inside of her and the pain that this pregnancy is causing her. So much so that she begins to question why God would do this to her. Then God speaks these remarkably comforting words to Rebecca and says, good news, you're having twins. <laughs> and not only are you having twins, but they're going to live in conflict with one another. And they're going to divide your family, divide you. They're going to turn your family upside down, and they are going to become nations that are divided and that will war throughout the Old Testament with one trying to subdue the other. This is not encouraging. Then your children are born, and your first child is this hairy, red child son, so disturbing in appearance you would question his humanity. Your second son, who can't look worse than the first, comes out grabbing onto the heels of the first. So this son, a son of action, is a son of very selfish action. Then the kids grow up, only to divide loyalties between mom and dad, have sibling rivalry like no other, and then you have your oldest child who's so focused on his immediate gratification that he despises the greatest gift that he could ever get. And your youngest child deceptively and manipulatively cheats your uncaring oldest child out of this great gift. Thanks, Brad. <laughs> you know, I think when you read this passage, if you're like me, you'll admit that you don't walk away from this just going, wow, that was wonderful. Did you see the grace of God there? But 
I think we'll see that. And, you know, I think I struggled with this text because it was so full of conflict. It was so close to real life. You know, you don't want to go and, and open scripture and, and see this terribly depressing passage and then go, oh, man, I can so connect with that. <laughs> that is so my life, this conflict, this rivalry, this manipulation. And, you know, I think really that's what makes this passage so encouraging is that this is really real life. This is something that we can connect with. Uh, you know, I was wrong when I first read this passage and became discouraged because, uh, you know, this is such an encouraging passage. You know, God here in the midst of real life works so graciously through this group of broken sinners. I can't help but be encouraged by that. So, you know, I think this is really an encouragement, and I hope it's an encouragement to you, his people, his church, and that through these seemingly impossible and painful circumstances, and through this cast of depraved, motley characters, where God fulfills his promise to Abraham out of loving and sovereign grace, that we, the church in Christ, would have hope that we would have hope and be encouraged by the same God who worked through Isaac and Rebekah and Esau and Jacob, knowing that he is the same God who works in and through us today. You see, this passage is about God and how he showers us with his grace through our every day despite our sin. So as we dig into this this morning, church, celebrate with me God's grace in this passage. If you would look again at, at this passage, verses 19 through 23, let's, let's read those verses again. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So we begin with what seems like deja vu. Uh, like Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah suffer from barrenness. And for 20 years of marriage, they desire to have children and can't. I can only imagine what was going through their minds and the conversations that they would have had about this. You know, did they, did they sit and talk about having children? And, and, you know, Isaac say to Rebecca, you know, we could do what mom and dad did, and, you know, we could try and have a child through one of your servants. Or, you know, did it, did it get really ugly and say, well, this must be your fault. There must be something wrong with you. I can only imagine what those conversations would have looked like. And you see what happened is sin 
has marred us. Sin has marred us. And it's shattered our relationship with God, and that, that affects everything. And because of this, we live a life that's really full of pain and suffering and disappointments. But you see, it's in, it's in the midst of these circumstances that our sin and our doubt make it difficult to see God's grace, to see his sovereign work. It's like you're in the middle of an ocean and you're floating in, in this massive storm with 30-foot swells all around, and you just feel like you're all alone. I'm sure Isaac and Rebecca felt this way, doubting the promise God had made to Abraham as though he had abandoned them. And do you struggle with this? Do you, do you struggle to see God's grace when you are in challenging circumstances? And this week was just a week of, of recounting how God has so graciously worked through them and looking back on them. But man, when you are in the moment, it is so hard. Maybe you're in the midst of that moment right now. You just feel that, that God's abandoned you. So I hope that today you are encouraged to see that, that God has not abandoned you. But in the midst of these circumstances, he is showering his grace upon you so lovingly. See, what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve when they sinned led to the barrenness that Isaac and Rebecca are experiencing. It's that effect of sin that has, has affected every generation since then. And it's through these effects of sin, these disastrous effects of sin, that God uses them to show his grace. So again, God, like Sarah and Abraham, uses barrenness to give grace to his people. But why? Why, why this again? Why barrenness again? Well, you'll notice that we read that they've been married for 20 years, Isaac and Rebecca. And it's then that we see this earnest petition to the Lord from Isaac that Rebecca would have child. And God gives her a child, children. And then once with child, Rebecca that seeks God. See, God in his infinite wisdom and love, and for no other reason than that, used Isaac and Rebecca's barrenness to strengthen their faith in him and to cultivate a trust in him. And this, an act of grace. See, more than our happiness, God wants our holiness. And he uses these difficult and challenging circumstances to teach us to trust him and have faith in him. And it's in the depths of our hurt and our suffering and the sorrow and the longing that we all have that we experience the depths of God's grace. And it's when we think that, that there is nothing left and we are, we are so far gone that we experience the pursuing and never-ending love of God. God also uses the seemingly impossible. He does things in ways that are contrary to the natural so that there is no question that it is his sovereign grace at work. See, biologically and culturally, Isaac and Rebecca should have many children at this point. 
They should have been fulfilling the promise, making a great nation, making a, a large and numerous nation through their children. But God has them barren for 20 years. So now there's no question that they're biologically broken and that they are well beyond childbearing years. Nature tells us that Abraham, uh, that Abraham and Sarah, like Abraham and Sarah, that they can't and won't have kids. But see, God is the creator of the natural. And that's the beautiful thing. God is the creator of the natural. And he has the right to go beyond the natural to supernaturally carry out his will. And if Isaac and Rebekah struggled with fertility for a short time, if they were significantly younger, then one might credit their, their struggles in having children to uh, some temporary problems or to chance. But God worked this out so that there is no question that he and he alone is the reason that they have a child. And he and he alone is fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham. It really has nothing to do with Isaac and Rebekah. And this is certainly not the first time that, and it won't be the last time that we see God work contrary to natural ways to display his grace. I mean, if you think that it's amazing that God would use two barren couples to have sinful, broken children, wait until God uses a young 15-year-old virgin girl to give birth to the sinless son of God. Our circumstances are vehicles for God's grace, and he sovereignly carries out his will to magnify his grace and to make us holy, to trust him and love him. God makes possible the seemingly impossible so that we can do nothing but recognize his sovereign grace, praising him for it and growing in our faith. And yeah, that can be a painful process. Here in this text, God graciously gives Isaac and Rebekah children. But it's not long into the pregnancy, and I'm sure amidst much, much rejoicing, that Rebekah becomes disheartened by the pain and the trouble of her pregnancy, by the warring inside her. You see, already in the womb, Esau and Jacob are battling one another. And God's oracle to Rebekah doesn't really provide her with much comfort. Rather than assure her that these twins will be faithful servants through whom all will be blessed because they are children of promise, she's told that her sons will be divided and will become divided nations. And not only that, but contrary to culture and family, the younger will serve the older the, the younger will come out on top, and the older will serve the younger. Let's take a look at these, uh, these two sons. Read with me verses 24 through 34. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so they called him, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau 
because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is the birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now from the womb, Isaac and Rebekah were really in for it. It couldn't have been easy to have this warring in the womb, and then God gives you an oracle that says, hey, by the way, this is only going to get worse. I can't imagine uh, you know, how they were feeling as they awaited the birth of the boys. And this passage quickly moves from the oracle to the birth of the twin boys in verses 24 through 34. Uh, and we begin to see what this conflict looks like. And really, this is only the beginning of the conflict. Uh, you know, keep reading on past this passage and you can see this conflict. Next week's, uh, next week's sermon is all about this conflict. And most of the Old Testament is all about this conflict. And it just reveals how much they're actually going to have. But as for these boys, they couldn't have been more different from one another. We first see Esau, the oldest, the manly man. You know, the description of his birth, this hairy, red child, is borderline disturbing. And, and like something, like almost like something out of a sci-fi movie. Uh, but the text then moves quickly from the birth description, and I can see why, to his life as, as an older boy, as a young man. And we see that Esau was a skilled hunter, an outdoorsman, who had the favor of his father. Now, what more could a firstborn have wanted? He was a go-getter, a provider, strong and persevering, and he had patriarchal favor, which was massively important since he was the firstborn and should receive the birthright, meaning that he would be the head of the household, he would receive a double portion of the inheritance and the spiritual blessing. Today, we see people who have these very same qualities, maybe not the looks, but the qualities, and we lift them up as examples of the human spirit, icons of what man can accomplish. If he were alive today, I would picture Esau having his own primetime survival show, you know, some sort of uh, Bear Grylls spinoff where, you know, he would take these guys out into the wilderness and he would teach them to hunt game with his bare hands. And, uh, you know, he would make rope out of his beard and body hair so that he could have a shelter. Uh, you know, he would push over trees, snapping them like twigs. And then he would just look at the wood on the ground and it would catch fire. I mean, th this, is, this is kind of how I, I'm picturing Esau. And, and like all the fans of the show would wear shirts and they would have Esau's picture on it, and they would say, Esau, he came, he conquered, you know? It's kind of good. I was worried about the cheesiness of that one. You might have to strike it. Well, maybe that's a bit much. Maybe that's not quite what Esau was doing. But the point is that Esau had everything people looked up to. He was the pinnacle of human achievement. But Esau also had some very real weaknesses. You see, he was a man ruled by his appetites. And here in the text, 
we see his physical appetite being indicative of his appetites in general, of his life. And Esau was all about Esau. And it's his insatiable hunger for instant gratification that leads him to forfeit his birthright. And Jacob, Jacob knew his brother all too well. He knew that when Esau returned from the field, desperately hungry for food, that his time had come. He knew that he could manipulate his brother to take the birthright. Now, you would think at Jacob's demand for the birthright that Esau would have stopped and would have rejected that request. I mean, that's what being the firstborn is all about. But this just shows you how short-sighted Esau really was. He was a man all about the here and the now. And because of this, he neglected the greatest gift, his birthright, and all spiritual blessing. Verse 34 very powerfully captures the contempt that Esau had for the status that God had given him as the firstborn. He comes in and Esau demands literally to gulp down this food like someone who hadn't eaten in months. And then when you give them food, they just inhale it. They're not eating. They are just gulping it down. And his perception was also one of desperation. Give it to me, for I am about to die. What use is a birthright to me? So Jacob took advantage of this and made Esau swear an oath, which is legally binding. This is where that exchange happened. We'll see some more depths of this next week. Jacob then gave Esau bread and stew. And listen to the verbs here. This This succession is very powerful because it really just magnifies Esau's um, neglect here. It says he ate, drank, rose, and he left. No arguing for the birthright. No trying to defend what was rightfully his culturally. Esau just sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. We can see who the skilled hunter is here, and it's not Esau. For being a master of so much, a master hunter, a master outdoorsman, Esau was also mastered by so much, mostly by the worship of himself. Now, this is where you might hear someone preaching this this text to say, you see, if Esau were mastered by God, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham, then he would have been chosen by God over Jacob. Or, If you can put off your selfish ways and just follow God, then you can be blessed by him and you can have your best life now, meaning that you can reclaim your birthright. But the problem with that is that's a lie. That's not the point. Esau had all the qualities that the world would have looked up to, but God doesn't care. And I don't mean that God doesn't care about people. I mean, that God doesn't care about what skills and abilities and good things that you claim that will not get you his favor. You can't merit yourself into God's favor. 
The whole point of this passage is that, I mean, if you could, God would most certainly have favored Esau, but he didn't. And believe me, God did feel very strongly about Esau, but not in a favoring way. Paul in Romans 9, verse 13, tells us exactly how God felt about Esau when he says, quoting Malachi, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. But why? Why did God hate Esau? You know, there are two big questions here, and this is one of them. Why did God hate Esau? Well, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, answers this question as abruptly as Paul gives the, you know, the statement that God hates Esau. And Spurgeon says, why does God hate any man? I defy anyone to give any answer but this, because the man deserves it. No reply but that can ever be true. How's that sitting with you right now? That every man deserves God's hate. You kind of feel like someone just punched you in the gut. Are you preparing that, that rebuttal to the answer already? It's like in your mind you're going, well, or but this. How can Esau deserve it? How can you deserve it? Well, Paul addressed this earlier on in that very book of Romans. When he explained how we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And we worship the creation rather than the creator in chapter 1. And that all, every one of us, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3, 23. And that the wages of that sin is death in Romans 6, 23. But here's the thing as we look at this story. For all of the differences between Esau and Jacob, they really weren't that different. Genesis 25 says that Jacob was a man of action, selfish and manipulative action. He quarreled with his brother in the womb. He was grasping at his brother's heel at birth, hence the name Jacob taking on the meal, meaning heel grabber or deceptor. Though he was a quiet man and dwelled in tents, meaning he just wasn't the outdoorsman that his brother was, he was very intelligent and very perceptive. We already saw how skilled of a hunter he really was. Most of all, Jacob wanted the birthright. He desired a good thing. He wanted the birthright that his brother was so quick to neglect. And there's no doubt that Jacob knew of God's oracle that Rebekah had before his birth. I mean, the text tells us that Jacob had his mom's favor. And I'm confident that his mother fed him this promise of the oracle for years. You know, Jacob waited for this with patience. You know, if he felt resentment towards, uh, towards Esau for not getting the attention of his father or not being, you know, lifted up as Esau was lifted up as this pinnacle of man, I'm sure that his mom comforted him with this oracle, that she consoled him every time he was upset, that don't worry, you will be the one of favor. You will be the one with the birthright. But in this comforting, 
Rebecca was simply feeding a very selfish desire to Jacob that he already had. I mean, it's great that Jacob desired the birthright and sought after it, but the way he went about it and his motives behind it, rather than drawing him to God in trust, steered him away from God. You see, Esau and Jacob are just alike. Esau's sin problem was that he worshipped himself and not the sovereign God. Jacob's sin problem was that he worshipped himself and not the sovereign God. And this self-worship led Jacob to manipulate Esau with a bowl of stew. And rather than coming to the aid of his famished brother, he took that very opportunity to take advantage of his condition and to take his greatest prize. So the second important question here is, why then did God love Jacob? I mean, seriously, look at these two. Why would God love either of them? Neither one of these men deserved God's love, and they both deserved his wrath. But we see that God loved Jacob. Well, first, God loved Jacob because God is faithful to his word. And he promised a plan of redemption to save his people from their sins. And he included Jacob as part of that plan. Way back in Genesis 3, God promised to send someone who would defeat sin. And after the fall in the garden, God had already planned how he would redeem his people, a fallen people. But because God is a holy God, he can't just excuse sin. He had to have a satisfactory sacrifice to pay for that sin. Now, Jacob becomes part of that plan. You know, earlier I read you the last part of of Romans 9, 13. He saw Jacob I loved, he saw I hated. Listen to the context around that, starting in verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob wasn't loved because of what he did or didn't do, but simply because God sovereignly chose and graciously chose him to be a part of his redemptive plan. And God chose Jacob the younger for the same reason that he works through barren couples to turn natural ways upside down and leave no doubt that he and he alone is the author and the perfecter of this plan. This isn't the first time God worked through the younger. And it won't be the last. God chose Abel over Cain, and when Cain killed Abel, he chose Seth. Then God chose Isaac over Ishmael, and Jacob over Esau, and Joseph over his brothers, and David over his brothers, and Solomon over his brother, and Ephraim over Manasseh. There's a pattern here. Why would God continue to do this? to show that he is God and he is sovereign. In the New Testament, we see this continuing paradox of how God works 
when Jesus calls fishermen and tax collectors, the lowest of the low and the outcast, to be his disciples. Did you see, when God works through the weak and the broken and the outcast and the younger and the barren and the sinner, they magnify him, they glorify him, they love him, they praise him, they trust him, and they put their faith in him. God gives grace to his people to show them that he is the sovereign God and he gives endless grace so that our love and worship of him would be endless. Jacob had nothing of value to be included in God's plan. This is what makes grace, grace. And what makes God's grace so extravagant is that he withholds none of it from his children for those he calls to himself. God loved Jacob not because of Jacob, but because he and his redemptive plan would send his son to pay the penalty for sin so he could look upon Jacob as righteous because he wears the righteousness of Christ. It's through Jesus, according to Romans 6.23 in the second part of that verse, that we have eternal life, and that a free gift. One commentator wrote, when Adam and Eve sinned and stood quaking in the Garden of Eden in anticipation of the outpouring of God's judgment, grace took over instead. They heard the promise of a deliverer who would come, and when the world was about to be destroyed by flood, Noah found grace from God. Later, when the world had drifted away from the knowledge of the true God entirely, Abraham was called by grace and sent into a land of promise, and he subsequently was given a son through whom Jesus would come. And it's the same here. Isaac and Jacob were children of Abraham, but they were not entitled to the favors of God on that account any more than Abraham was entitled to them. God continued the line of Abraham through Isaac by grace according to the promise. And when a choice was made between twin sons of Rebekah, again, it was of grace and not of works that Jacob was chosen. And it's the same God who gives grace to Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob in their sin that gives grace to you, most fully in salvation through his son Jesus. There is nothing in you that warrants God's love and favor in your life. I mean, it doesn't matter how many good things you do, how many noble causes you are involved with, or how much money you give to the church. There is nothing that you can do to save you or earn God's favor. On the other hand, it doesn't matter what you've done, how far you've strayed, how entangled you are in sin, you are never out of the reach of God's grace. It is only God and his sovereign grace who saves us and restores us in this through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's by God's grace alone that we are given faith in Jesus and made to be God's chosen people. And that grace changes everything. It's by God's grace alone that he takes those who are dead in their trespasses and makes them alive. You were dead, makes you alive in Christ. 
It is by God's grace alone that he can take those born of the flesh and make them born of the Spirit. God's grace is amazing. God's grace frees us from the pressure to be perfect and to have it all together. It frees us from the strivings of success and to make a great name for ourselves because the work that was done to give us the grace was not our work. We can't boast in ourselves. We can only boast in the sovereign, gracious God who has redeemed us and does good for us, making his name great. God's grace frees us to be transparent and real about our sin. It allows us to confess our sins to God and to one another without fear of rejection or banishment because we've already been forgiven. And it allows us to repent and turn from those sins. God's grace frees us to share the gospel with others because we can share the gospel out of love for God and love for people. We need not fear ridicule of man since we live with the favor of God. We need not worry about people's receptivity to the gospel because we trust in God's sovereign grace that he alone regenerates the heart of man. God's, God's grace also frees us to love him completely. If God's love, if our love for God was predicated on our work and righteousness, then every time we sin, every time we screw up, our love for him would just come crashing down and would end. But since God's grace is given us, given solely because of the perfect work of Christ, then we are free to love God despite our sins and our failings. God loved us first, and we love him endlessly because his grace is endless. Lastly, God's, God's grace frees us to love others. His grace changes us. And because God has loved us, forgiven us, and gives us all good things, we can become givers of that very same grace. We can love others more than ourselves. We can forgive others when they sin against us. We can sacrifice for each other, giving good things to one another. If it weren't for God's grace, we couldn't live in community as the church. If it weren't for God's grace, the local church, Veritas, would become a place where rivalry and bitterness would be the mark of our relationships and contempt and pride would be our rhythms. It's only by God's grace that we, a community of sinners, can live together in unity and love each other. I mean, that's just crazy. The commentator I, I quoted earlier also said, we say it again, all is of grace. All that you are, all that you will become, all that you have, all that you will ever attain, all is due to God's grace. So if you're here today and you are in Christ, be encouraged by this passage that the God who so graciously dealt, loved Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob 
so amazingly in his grace loves you. And it's only because of God's sovereign grace that we have hope. And it's only by his grace that we are a people called to himself, being transformed by him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your grace, which does change us, it transforms us. God, help us to remember the reality of our sinful condition, that there is nothing that we can do to earn your favor, but that you love us because you have sovereignly chosen to love us. And that your grace is seen most in salvation through your son, Jesus, whom you promised in Genesis 3 to come and to take away the sin of the world. So God, may we go and rejoice in that. May our confidence be not in ourselves, but in your graces. May we trust in you and may we grow in faith in you. Thank you for loving us so much.